Um, this is a session called Beyond Organized Religion. Um, this is, I'm, I'm going to give you a really brief study in Phariseeism. What the Pharisees were all about, uh, what they were trying to accomplish, how we, we talk about even how we know the things that we know about the Pharisees. Um, the handout is just to let, make you aware of the fact that first, first of all, this is me, I'm Mark Smith. Um, from the Laurel Church of Christ in Knoxville. There's my email. Um, I'm smithlogos at uh, AOL for baby boomers. And I'm smithlogos at gmail for millennials. And I'm smithlogos at yahoo for yahoos. So uh, whatever you prefer. I'm smithlogos at all those things. Um, just a couple of uh, things, just wanted you to take note of at the beginning. First, I've, I've listed here a couple of books. Probably the, the best book available right now on the subject of Phariseeism is uh, Saldarini's book, Pharisees, Scribes, and Sadducees in Palestinian Society. Uh, it's, a, it's, uh, it's not really a beach read, but it's a good read. It, it, it is chock full of not, not, not only good information, but there's so much being learned about the Pharisees that, that it's got to be continually updated. Saldarini's book is only a year or two old, and uh, it's a very, very helpful book. The Hidden Revolution, Pharisee Search for the King Within by Ellis Rivkin is an older book. It's about 50 years old. But uh, and some of the things that Rivkin um, argues are disputed today, but he gives some really, really helpful information about the effect of the... Uh, the Greco-Roman thinking, the Greco-Roman the, the mindset, and the way that that affected the Pharisees, and therefore he has a—he's really good on, on helping you understand why the Pharisees were so popular with the with the common people. They were, they were tremendously popular with the with common people in the first century world. Um, this material that I'm also sharing was originally in the form of eleven sermons that I preached in the summer of 2018 at the Laurel Church. If you are a preacher and, and you think what my church needs right now is a good series on the Pharisees, then uh, you are welcome to, uh, to check these out. I've got the, if you go to the Laurel uh, uh, website and click on sermons, and those are the dates in which each one of the 20 points that I'm talking about here, uh, we're not going to cover all 20 of them this morning, but, uh, but uh, that is available if you, uh, if you want to access it. And uh, if you'd like to get some more information, good morning. All right. So let me say just a couple of things before we really get into the heart of the material. I think the sinful nature is, is best seen. In, in a very simple human phenomenon um, that's everywhere. I, I think that the, the fact, if there's any discussion about whether or not we have a sinful nature, I think that that conversation can be ended by simply pointing out that we have, simply, we have a seemingly unquenchable need to assume positions of moral superiority over other human beings. It's just hardwired into us. We can't stop it. 
it gets reflected in, in business, it gets reflected in, uh, in politics, certainly, and uh, it is very much reflected in the world of religion. Religion throughout history has tended to be a way for people to assume moral superiority over other people. And in the process of assuming moral superiority over, over others, we then kind of tend to think of them as, as less than. And once we start thinking of people as less than, we then put ourselves in a position where we're able to justify doing immoral things to the people that we think we are morally superior to. That, basically, is the history of the world. And certainly, that is the history of religion. Nowhere is it better seen. Nowhere is the sinful nature better revealed than in the process of looking at religion. Biblical conservatives tend to think that we are superior to people who don't share our worldview, who don't share our a commitment to the text. And biblical liberals think they are superior to people that take what they consider to be a, a wooden or an archaic view of the text of Scripture. It's just in us. We can't escape it. We have a sinful nature. And it forces us or it makes us want to feel superior to other people and and the danger of a study like, like the one we're going to do this morning and the danger of the 11 sermons that I preached on this a uh, year and a half ago is, um, is, is that it's easy when we're looking at the Pharisees to think of this as a, as a study of them. It's easy as we look at the New Testament to think of Phariseeism as something that's, that's what the other people do. It's what the people that, that we disagree with do. It's what the people that, that, uh, uh, that bother us, it's, it's what they do. And, and I think if we're going to benefit from Scripture and really have a tr spiritual transformation result from our willingness to look at the text, we have to think of Phariseeism first in terms of us. We have to see ourselves and the Pharisaic tendencies that every single one of us have to overcome. We all have an inner Pharisee that's trying to get out. And I think part of our calling as people who are trying to serve God is, is that we make the struggle with the inner Pharisee something that we take very, very seriously. Right. Okay. With that in mind, September 11, 2001, is, as we all know, or was a dramatically life-changing experience for our country. Nothing has really been the same since. Um, when the, since the Twin Towers uh, fell, uh, you know, flying, flying across the country, the, the Pepperdine Lectures went from being a wonderful, comfortable experience to be an agony uh, to get checked into the airport and, and, and then get over here. Uh, there's just all sorts of things that were dramatically affected in our culture by the, uh, the events of September 11th. One of the more overlooked things that happened on that day is basically September 11th, 2001 was the beginning of 
what is sometimes today referred to as the new atheist movement. Traditional atheism said religion has made great contributions to Western culture. Religion has done a lot of good things. It's, it's helped to start our educational system. It started hospitals. There's a lot of good things that we can look at that all started uh, with and, and were started by religious people. And traditional atheism said, but we, we don't believe God exists. And so the focus of the discussion was always on what is the evidence for God's existence. We were able to do that, have those kinds of conversations, really, for, for a long, long time. When the new atheists looked at September 11th, they said discussing God's existence or non-existence is not a worthwhile endeavor. They began with the assumption God does not exist, and therefore, they said, organized religion is the problem. The new atheists, instead of arguing whether or not God exists, are saying, are arguing whether or not organized religion has a right to exist. They consider organized religion to be the root cause behind most wars throughout history. You can make a pretty good case. They consider organized religion to be the cause of most of the bigotry and hatred that they find in the world. Again, you can make a pretty good case. They consider organized religion to be the source of, of most social injustice. They consider it to be the source of a great deal of psychological problems. And, and their, their rationale is since God does not exist and organized religion causes so many problems, organized religion must be eliminated. We have to do away with it. Now, before you think I'm, I'm overstating the, the, the case, let me read to you quote from Sam Harris. In his book, um, uh, uh, what is the name of the book? Uh, uh, the End of Faith. Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith. He makes this statement. Even apparently innocuous beliefs when unjustified can lead to intolerable consequences. Many Muslims, for instance, are convinced that God takes an active interest in women's clothing. While it may seem harmless enough, the amount of suffering that this incredible idea has caused is astonishing. The rioting in Nigeria over the 2002 Miss World pageant claimed over 200 lives. Innocent men and women were butchered with machetes or burned alive simply to keep that troubled place free of women in bikinis. He's writing around 2003, 2004, right, right around there. Earlier in the year, the religious police in Mecca prevented paramedics and firefighters from rescuing scores of teenage girls trapped in a burning building. Why? Because the girls were not wearing the traditional head covering that Quranic law requires. Fourteen girls died in the fire. Fifty were injured. And then he asked this question, should Muslims really be free to believe that the creator of the universe is concerned about hemlines. Sam Harris's answer to that question, should Muslims be free to believe the creator of the universe is concerned about hemlines? His answer to that question is no. They should not be allowed to believe that. Sam Harris argues that organized religion should be outlawed. That's the whole premise of the book, The End of Faith. It is a, 
It is a long discussion about why organized religion needs to be done away with and how it should be outlawed, what, what, what that is going, to, is going to look like. Harris defines organized religion as any religion that has a sacred text uh, because uh, Harris says that the only religions that have a capacity for violence are the religions that believe that God has spoken in some way. Um, it may surprise you, it shouldn't, uh, to find out that I agree with a great deal of what Sam Harris has to say. I've read The End of Faith a couple of times. Um, there is no denying that horrible, horrible things throughout history have been done in the name of God by organized religion. It is organized religion that convinces children to strap bombs to themselves, walk into crowded marketplaces, and take hundreds and hundreds of innocent lives. It is organized religion that promotes the murder of abortion doctors. It is organized religion that demands uniformity, and if we do not uh, submit to uniformity, it is organized religion that tries to invoke price, punishment. There's a lot of problems associated with organized religion, and we would be wise to just admit that up front. However, to lump together every religion that has a sacred text and say, this is what organized religion is. Any religion with a sacred text has to go. It has to be outlawed. That is a sweeping generalization at best because, quite frankly, the, the, the vast majority of the people who believe in a sacred text do not believe in using violence to promote that text yes. or to even defend that text, and that includes most Muslims. That's right. The vast majority of Muslims have no interest in using violence to promote their cause or to defend their cause, and they are as embarrassed by what the radicals tend to do as, uh, as, as, as anybody else would be. As, as they're as embarrassed by it as we are shocked by it. So uh, uh, Harris's response to that, he knows that. He knows that most, most people do not think violence is good in a religious context. So his response is to say the only reason that the moderate majority does not engage in violence is we choose to ignore or reinterpret the sacred text. And he says if, if everybody who believes in a sacred text would simply take their sacred text literally, then everybody who believes in the sacred text would be violent. And to make that point, he, he's, he's got three major sections. One section on Islam, uh, another section on, on Judaism, and another section on Christianity. Those are the three religions that have a sacred text, three religions that believe that, that, that God has spoken. In the section on Islam, he, has, he cites quote after quote after quote. It is a really long list of quotes from the Koran that very clearly are calling for violence on behalf of Islam in certain circumstances. In the question, in the section on Judaism, he cites the genocide passages from, from the Old Testament. Um, he talks about passages, what kind of God, he asks, would, would utterly, would command that the, that the uh, uh, various nations, Amalekites and others, be utterly destroyed and be other, utterly uh, uh, decimated. That kind of genocide is unthinkable from 
uh, from their perspective. He cites Deuteronomy 13 that talks about the punishment for a heretic being death. He says, what, you know, isn't that kind of overkill? What, what kind of a faith system would, would kill somebody for disagreeing with the faith system? So he's got a pretty strong section on Islam, a, a, a relatively strong section on Judaism. I think I can, I can give an explanation for a lot of the things that he points out in Judaism. But when he gets to Christianity, on and, and that section, he's got a problem. The problem is that our sacred text is the New Testament. Uh, our sacred text claims to be the fulfillment of, of what we're given in that Old Testament law. And so our sacred text th- says things like there was a time that God allowed polygamy, basically. But his intent was one man and one woman for life. And our sacred text says that, that there was a time when God allowed violence. In fact, God put in place uh, a principle that we call lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the whole idea of that principle was to keep the violence to a minimum so, the, so that there wouldn't be as much violence as, as, uh, uh, as, as there would be if everybody just went to war over, over every little, uh, every little uh, perceived, perceived attack. Uh, our sacred text says that's the way it was in, in, in ancient times, but... But we now realize that the intent of that was we have to learn to respond to evil with good. And, and we have to learn to respond to attacks from others with, uh, with kindness and love. There's not one single passage in the New Testament that can be fairly interpreted as encouraging violence. In fact, the opposite is true. The New Testament is the only sacred text that says if somebody attacks you, turn the other cheek. Yeah. And it's the only sacred text that says, if somebody wants to make you go a mile with them, you go too. And it's the only sacred text that says that if somebody uh, is, treats you horribly and, 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 and treats you in the worst possible way you could ever be treated, you have to forgive them. Amen. Our sacred text, folks, is, is unique. And Sam Harris knows that. Because Sam Harris is not an unintelligent man. Sam Harris knows that when he gets to the New Testament, he's, his argument is going to kind of fall apart. And so what he does when he gets to the section on, on Christianity is, is he cites a couple of verses out of context. Mostly it's the, it was the verses about the armor of God. And he says that seems to be promoting violence. Sam Harris knows that's not promoting violence. Sam Harris knows what a metaphor is. Um, but, you know, when you, when you begin with your conclusion, you, you have to make whatever arguments you can, and so that's what he does. He knows he's not promoting, that those passages are not promoting violence, and that's why he doesn't spend much time on them. He just, just touches them very lightly for a paragraph or two. And then Harris focuses on the examples from history in which Christian people have resorted to violence in the name of our God. He goes into a painful description of the Crusades and some of the horrible, horrible things that Christian people did in the name of God during the Crusades. He goes into a painful description of, of the Inquisition and how, how uh, Christian people would literally uh, kill others than to allow them to think the wrong things. 
he gives, goes into a painful description of the witch burnings that took place, mostly in Europe, but some took place here in the United States. Again, which it's just a, an, an effort to silence people that, that, that think differently. He goes into a painful description of, of slavery and the way that, that, that Christianity was, the, the, the problem with slavery in the earliest days is that the Christians were behind it. They were supportive of it. They saw better eventually, but but it's difficult. It's, it's painful as he goes through that whole thing. He points out that even men as scholarly and as dedicated as John Calvin, who was not a violent man at all on the surface, but even somebody as, 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 as scholarly and as dedicated as John Calvin made heresy punishable by death in Geneva, and he oversaw carrying out that law one time. Now, it was only once, so, you know, I mean, but if you were the guy that was, uh, you know, that was executed under, under Calvin, then you, you, you wouldn't be so fond of the idea that it was only once. But uh, that's what he says organized religion does. The problem is that while these things may represent organized religion, I don't believe they represent biblical Christianity. I certainly do not believe that they represent what Jesus intended for his people. Jesus came on the scene at a time when organized religion was, was at its peak. When Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees had an institutional stranglehold over Judaism. The two leading scholars in the first century B.C. were Hillel and Shammai. Uh, they were both uh, dead when Jesus came on the scene. But their schools were still very, very influential. And the primary debate that was taking place in the Pharisaic community was the debate between which of these two great rabbis are we going to follow when, when they disagreed. They agreed a good portion of the time. But when they disagreed, there was, there was great, great debate of, about which Pharisee do we follow? Do we follow Rabbi Hillel uh, or do we follow Rabbi Shammai? Um, the, there's a document I'm going to talk about in a minute called, the, called the, the Mishnah. It is the primary source of information that we have about Phariseeism uh, outside of the New Testament and outside of the writings of Josephus. And uh, the Mishnah quotes Hillel and Shammai more than any other two rabbis uh, that are cited. They are the, the great rabbis. Uh, the Mishnah tends to favor Shammai over Hillel. Uh, they tend to, it tends, but, but they still, they were both so highly regarded that they were both, uh, they're both quoted over and over and over again in the Mishnah. Nicodemus we know. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, we're told, in John, that, that came to Jesus by night. He was a, uh, a very important member of the Sanhedrin. We also know that the reason he came to Jesus by night is that he could not afford for his fellow Pharisees to know who he was talking to. That's how powerful the institutional stranglehold was that the Pharisees had over first century Judaism. They had men that were men of, of held in high regard, great teachers, great authority, who were afraid for anybody to know that they had a conversation with Jesus. Gamaliel was the grandson of, of Hillel. Uh, Gamaliel is, uh, is, is another very heavily cited rabbi 
uh, in the Mishnah, and um, he is called Gamaliel the Elder there to separate him from from some of the other uh, Gamaliels, Gamaliels, and uh, uh, to enable us to know just just what a great man he is. That was a, that was a a term of, of regard and esteem that indicated that Gamaliel was considered to be a great elder, or great, or great uh, rabbi, rather. Gamaliel, of course, is the teacher of Saul of Tarsus. So Gamaliel is Hillel's grandson, who then teaches Saul of Tarsus. There is a direct uh, line, a direct link uh, in training between Hillel and Saul. And you can kind of see it. Hillel tends to be the more, the more liberal. When, when he and Shammai disagree, Hillel tends to take the more liberal side. Um, and so it's really not surprising that Saul, who was trained by Gamaliel, would, would kind of end up uh, uh, thinking some of the things, uh, some of the things that he, he thought. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, of course, becomes the Apostle Paul. Josephus uh, claimed to be a Pharisee. Josephus... Um, is, uh, was first century. He's an eyewitness to the structure of Jerusalem and, and a bunch of other things. And um, he, whether or not he's a Pharisee was, is questioned by scholars simply because um, he basically claims that he checked out every major religious uh, uh, school of thought in ancient Judaism. He checked them all out. And, uh, and he decided the Pharisees were the best one, and that's the one that he, but, but he tried them. He claims he tried being a Sadducee, and he tried being an Essene, and all the other things. And finally he said, no, Phariseeism is the right way to go. Uh, a lot of uh, scholars will question that simply because uh, Phariseeism generally required a whole lot more than just saying, oh, I've checked it out, and I've decided this is what I want to be. It's, it, 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 it really may be more a matter of convenience uh, that Josephus claims to be a Pharisee. But if we accept Josephus at his word, if we say Josephus was a Pharisee, then he is one of only two Pharisees whose writings survived to this day. Only two people that we absolutely know were Pharisees had their writings survived. One is Josephus. The other? Paul. Oh. We're limited in what we can know about Phariseeism. Just because the information that we have comes from sources that are considered to be suspect in, in, in scholarly circles. To say, if we use Paul as our primary source for what Phariseeism was about, then there's a lot of folks that, uh, uh, that, that would question that. The Sanhedrin um, was dominated in the first century by the Pharisees. Herod the Great had shifted power away from the Sadducees in the, in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were well-to-do, and they were kind of uh, professional politicians, more or less, and, um, and they didn't always go along with Herod the Great. He didn't like that, and so he did some things to shift the power away from the Sadducees to the Pharisees, and um, when you come to the first century, the Pharisees are the ones who are dominant. They have control over the Sanhedrin. Literally nothing could be done in the first century world uh, first century Judaism without the support of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, in effect, determined the, uh, the way the temple traditions were carried out. They determined how the food laws were carried out. They determined uh, what the ceremonial washings were supposed to look like or what they were going to look like. For the most part, the Pharisees were not priests. Priesthood is an accident of birth. Uh, if you were a male descendant of Aaron, that made you a priest. You were in. Um, 
You only became a Pharisee by pursuing it. And it was rigorous. Pursuing Phariseeism involved you were involved years and years of of intense study at the at the foot uh, at the feet of a rabbi, and and it involved memorization that in our day and time is unthinkable. You know, we, we can't imagine. Part of our education is we're going to memorize the entire Old Testament, and part of our uh, part of our education is we're going to memorize vast uh, parts of the Mishnah and uh, be able to cite these things, but that's what, that's what the Pharisees went through. They were, uh, it was a rigorous, rigorous pursuit that involved years of study. And so the priests tended to focus on the liturgy and the sacrifices because that, that was their job. The Pharisees focused on teaching. They focused on being experts in the law. And a very tense relationship developed between the Pharisees and the priesthood. Because the priests would make their sacrifices. They would go to the temple, they would do the things that they were supposed to do, and they would follow the rules they were supposed to follow. And the Pharisees, as the priests were doing what they did, the Pharisees would do what Pharisees did. They'd watch. They'd watch to make sure that the priests did it the way they are supposed to do it. And they would watch to make sure that that, that no mistakes were made. They, they wanted to make sure that, uh, that uh, the law was followed in, in every little detail. The Pharisees basically became the epitome of organized religion. They are, to me, the epitome of institutionalized religion. Jesus is their polar opposite. Jesus challenges the Pharisees from the very beginning of his ministry. This is not something that just happens late. From the beginning of his ministry, he challenges the mindset of Phariseeism and he does it until the day that they orchestrate his crucifixion. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, get this now, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Pharisees and teachers of the law are really two, I think it's two ways of referring to the same group of people. Um, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says we have to go beyond the Pharisees. Jesus says, if we're going to be his disciples, we have to go beyond what organized religion tends to do. I mentioned the Mishnah. Outside of the, uh, of the New Testament, most of the information we have about the Pharisees comes from the Mishnah. It was a document written around 200 A.D. Um, it claimed to, to record and write down the oral law that had come from the Pharisees, believed, had actually started with Moses on Mount Sinai. Mishnah says this in Abbath chapter 1, verse 1. Abbath is the Hebrew word for fathers. Moses received the law from Sinai and committed it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets committed it to the men of the great synagogue. The great synagogue was a really, really important concept for the for first century Pharisees. Uh, they considered the great synagogue to be the, the, the men in particular that that were part of the, of the group that went back after the Babylonian cap, captivity to rebuild the city. 
and uh, and in that group there were some people that were that were uh, uh, th that basically said we will never let this happen again during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and, ne and Nehemiah they said we'll never let this happen again they believed that the reason the Babylonian captivity had come was that uh, they were being punished for their for their failure to follow the law and so uh, the men of the great synagogue committed to meticulously following scripture in every way that they possibly could. The Pharisees, again, they thought of this as, as really their starting place. Um, uh, scholars will question it, but, but, but that's what the mindset was in the first century world. They eventually called themselves the separated ones. That's basically the meaning of the word Pharisee. The name Pharisee does not occur, the word Pharisee does not occur in any ancient literature until the New Testament. The name Pharisee is never found in the Old Testament. It's not even found in the intertestamental period where we would expect to find it. I would have expected to find, uh, during the Maccabean Revolt, a group of people called the Pharisees. That's where most scholars think Pharisees really got started. And there are people, if you read the books, uh, the Maccabean books, um, there, there were certainly people that, that had the spirit that eventually would become the Pharisees. And so it's, it's, they're probably right in saying that Pharisees have really got to start during, uh, during the Maccabean Revolt. This much is certain. For a little while, the Pharisees were the model of what organized religion ought to be. If, if we read about what happened in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that group of men that... That, that they refer to as the great synagogue. There's devotion to God coming from those men. There's a willingness to sacrifice. There's a willingness to do whatever it takes in order for God's will to be done in the world. Phariseeism begins, organized religion, it begins in, a, in typically a very healthy way and, and it's powerful for a little while. And yet by the time that, that Jesus comes along, um, the Pharisees have become the ultimate example of spiritual failure, institutional decay, and, and a great, great illustration of the dangers associated with organized religion. Wow. We are introduced in Matthew's gospel. Matthew talks about the Pharisees more than, than any of the other gospel writers um, for obvious reasons. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. They need to understand the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. We're first introduced to the Pharisees in Matthew in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, this is he who was spoken of uh, through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So John the Baptist was a very unique prophet in that John the Baptist let the people come to him. Usually prophets in the ancient world would go to the people. They'd, a prophet was called and he'd go to Jerusalem to, to give his message or he'd go to the temple to give his message or uh, go to the king to give his message, whatever, whatever it was called. And usually the, the, the prophets would go to the people. John the Baptist is unique in that, in that he goes out in the wilderness. He goes out in the desert and just starts preaching. And whoever shows up, uh, shows up. Uh, probably he started with a handful of people. Probably wasn't a very big group, but uh, those handful, that handful went back and got a few friends, and, 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 then, and then that handful uh, got a few more friends, and, 
And pretty soon there's this gigantic group of people who are regularly going out to hear what John the Baptist has to say, to listen to this prophet. And then we're told in verse 7 that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Yeah. Notice that it does not say that the Pharisees came to be baptized in the wilderness. The text says the Pharisees came to the place where John was baptizing. In other words, they're not there really to learn God's will. They're not there to be spiritually challenged. They're not even there necessarily to submit to baptism. They're there to check up on John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. That's what organized religion tends to become. Organized religion tends to become a, a power structure in, in which you have people who feel like it's their job to check up on everybody else, make sure they're doing what they need to be. And so because organized religion places a high priority on policing others, I think that if we're going to go beyond organized religion, we have to place a high priority on policing ourselves. Yeah. If we're going to go beyond organized religion, we have to realize that the focus cannot be on everybody else's shortcomings. The focus has to be on us and how we can better serve God yes. and how we can better be his, be his people. Let's say for a sake of illustration that a fellow's in the used car business, it's a very relationship-oriented business and he's doing really, really great. He's focused on his customers. His customers are happy. He's making a lot of money, so he's happy. But he hears one day a rumor that there's another used car lot on the other side of town in which they're breaking the rules. They're, they're setting back the odometers. I don't even know if you can do that with all the electronics now. But uh, for the sake of not ruining my illustration, uh, they're, they're setting back the odometers. And so he sneaks over there and he catches him in the act. He's got, he catches the guy with the odometer tool in his hand and he's going to turn it back and he reports it to the authorities and the fellow gets arrested and, and it's a big scandal. But all the other car dealers start praising him because, man, we're all going to be hurting if there's people out there that are doing the wrong thing. There's people out there that, uh, that, that uh, don't have the right attitude. And so he gets a lot of praise and he says, that was kind of fun. And so here's about another fellow that was, that's kind of uh, uh, doing, uh, breaking the rules and he sneaks over there and catches him in the act and, and, uh, and that's kind of fun. And, and so pretty soon he's, uh, he sets up a website uh, where they can identify all the used car dealers that are, uh, that are not reliable. And, and, and for a while everything's going good because, uh, uh, because uh, you know, he's catching all these people and he's, everybody's praising him and, and it's all wonderful. But it doesn't take very long before it starts running out of good leads. It'll take very long before we've kind of already found the people that are really just egregiously doing things that are wrong. And, and, and so now he changes his tactics a little bit. Now, if he hears that a particular uh, car dealer is doing well, he assumes that person must be cheating. Because how else would you do well? If, if you're doing well, then, then, then you, you, you must be cheating. And, and so uh, eventually, he's spending most of his time sneaking around the best car lots in town uh, looking for things to expose. And as he's doing this, his business completely dries up. Because, folks, you cannot maintain a healthy business if your focus is on policing others. You only maintain a healthy business if your focus is on policing yourself, making sure that I am doing the things that need to be done. 
organized religion uh, gets focused on others so as to sustain the, sat the status quo to get beyond organized religion, we've got to, again, focus on, on pleasing ourselves, realizing that the New Testament places a really strong emphasis on the idea of personal responsibility. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. John 21, um, uh, Peter's basically being uh, reinstated here and uh, after denying the Lord. And the first thing he asked after being reinstated is he looks at John and says, Lord, what about him? I'm worried about John. He needs to be reinstated too. And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You have to follow me. In other words, he's saying, Peter, if you're going to be healthy, you got to stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and all the mistakes they're making and whether or not you think they're being treated fairly by me. That's right. If you're going to be healthy, you have to focus on yourself. You have to accept responsibility for yourself. Second uh, Peter 1.10, um, Peter's listing the Christian virtues there, and he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling election, for you, if you do these things, you will never stumble. It, it, it pains me that, that we don't cite these kinds of verses the way we used to. There was a time when, when, when I first identified with the Church of Christ back in the 1960s, I thought that I had found... The, 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 the people I'd been looking for my entire life because I'd found the only people who were willing to say we're going to make our calling an election sure Amen. we're going to focus on us we're going to make sure that we're just, we're, we're just true to scripture the emphasis again is on, is on personal responsibility Philippians chapter 2 uh, Paul says therefore dear friends as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in accord to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul says, look, you, you, have, to keep, you have to keep working on this. You have, to keep, you, you, you have to keep examining yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examining your, you have to keep testing your beliefs against the data. Contest your belief system uh, against, uh, against whatever inf information is available. The fact is when the church gets busy policing other people, whether we're policing other churches or policing the culture, which I think is as big of a trap as policing other churches. Mm -hmm. We spend all our time policing the culture, policing what's wrong with everybody else. When that happens, I would argue that we tend to lose our strength, we lose our stability, and we lose our vitality. It is one of the great causes of spiritual decay. And, and that includes policing other people within our own fellowship. If we're too busy policing others, we lose something. But it's always a great temptation. It is, it is far easier for me to tell you what's wrong with everybody else than it is for me to tell you what's wrong with us. Um. I'm, I'm preaching on Sunday morning. It is far easier for me to tell you what's wrong with the politicians. <laughs> that is low-hanging fruit. <laughs> It's easy to tell you what's wrong. I can find so many things wrong with the politicians in both parties and all the alternate alternate parties. I, I, can, I can find so much stuff that I never have to put together another sermon. I just keep talking about all the, you know, all the things we see in our culture that's falling apart and uh, uh, low-hanging fruit. Um, it, is, uh, uh, it is easy to tell you what's wrong with other fellowships. Yep. 
Because when I tell you what's wrong with other fellowships, I'm not having given you a, a, a reasoned, nuanced explanation for what they believe. I just give you my little quick perspective, and there's no, uh, there's no response to it. And it's easy. I can, you know, because I'm, I'm totally in charge of the situation. You know, it's my sermon. So, so if, if I want to say, well, these folks believe this, when that may be in the ballpark, but maybe, maybe pretty, you know, there's a lot of things I'm leaving out. Well, that's all right. You know, that's how we do it. It's easy. It's easy to spend all your time policing other people. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to, uh, um, uh, to talk. Oh, the, that's low-hanging fruit. The, the entertainment industry, that is low-hanging fruit. I mean, it is, it's crazy how, how easy it is to talk about what's wrong with entertainment and all the things they do that are bad. And, and, and there's a part of us that's drawn to that. That's what makes organized religion so insidious. Religion is one of the few areas in which self-appointed policing of others is considered to be a good thing. Politics is another. And, and when those come together, I, I think political Phariseeism is more rampant today than at any time in my life, certainly. And when those come together, when the religiously motivated police people come together with the politically motivated police people, the whole thing's about to fall apart. The problem is that it destroys our ability to connect with the people that God has sent us to reach. If we spend all of our time policing other people, we're not focusing on us and we're not focusing on those people that God has called us to connect with. Amen. You don't connect with people by policing them. You connect with people by loving them. That's right. You connect with people by engaging, getting involved in their lives, by showing them that you care and showing them that you're, that, that you're interested in. Jesus says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world he gave his only son so whoever believes in him when I perish I have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Jesus was not sent to be a theological policeman. God sent his son to save it. Save the world. And like Jesus we're not sent to condemn the world or, or be spiritual policemen. We are sent to save the world. By connecting with it and by sharing the love of Christ. Matthew 3 7 says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sages come to where he was baptizing, again he said to them, You brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is John the Baptist. Uh, again, he's, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Don't think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John is saying nobody is going to be saved by proximity to an institution. Nobody. Every Jew in the ancient world could say, I am a child of Abraham. I have close proximity to the correct institution. And that ought to be good for something. John says it's really not. What God wants is not us for us to be in close proximity to the correct institution. What God wants is for us to repent. It's for us to make a conscious decision to follow him and let that decision be reflected in our behavior toward others. Let that decision be reflected in the way that we treat the people around us. The average American has no interest, folks, in a church whose primary focus is on condemning other people. That is organized religion. Mm -hmm. 
We are called to go beyond that. Our primary focus should be on policing ourselves. I'm just going to touch on this one quickly because we're almost out of time. I think we also have to acknowledge that organized religion has a general unwillingness to associate with outsiders. And if we're going to embrace, if we're going to go beyond organized religion, then we've got to learn to embrace people who are not like us. That's right. In whatever way it is. Ethnically, we have to embrace people not like us. Theologically, we have to develop relationships. If we really believe it when we say that the Bible will speak for itself, then we have to embrace. We ought to be developing, cultivating relationships with people theologically who are not exactly like us. Matthew chapter 9, while Jesus was having dinner in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said, there's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. First century table fellowship had, had profound social significance uh, at several different levels, but one of the most important for this lesson is that Table fellowship was a form of endorsement. It was a way of saying, I accept this person as an individual who is my social equal. And, and so there was a lot of stuff tied up in, in who you ate with and didn't eat with. And because of that, people tended to be extremely careful about who they ate with, especially if you were considered to be a religious leader or somebody who was spiritually on the cutting edge. You had to be very careful about about who you were seen eating with because that might be thought of or seen as a form of endorsement. Sinners in this context refers to anybody that didn't meet the Pharisee standard of religious purity. The Pharisees only associated with their own. And so when they see Jesus having table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, it's shocking to them. It, it, it completely blows up their worldview. Basically, there's only two, there, there's really only two approaches to fellowship. One approach is to embrace as many people as possible. If we, we say, my goal is I wanna, I wanna extend the circle as much as I can, I wanna develop relationships with as many people as I can, and then I'll let God sort it out. Uh, let God be the judge, and, and, and that, of course, is what this is about. The other approach, basic approach to self-fellowship, is to diminish the circle by excluding anybody who's questionable. If your attitude is anybody who's questionable is out, then, then you make the circle, you're making the circle as small as you can possibly make it. Jesus clearly believed in expanding the circle. That's why we find him eating with Pharisees and sinners and other people that the Pharisees, excuse me, we found him eating with Pharisees and sinners, both groups, while they would not have anything to do with each other. We find Jesus eating, uh, interacting with men and with women, something a, a Pharisee would not think of doing in the ancient world. We find Jesus interacting with Jews in a very active way, and he interacts with Samaritans, who, this, who the Jews hate. Jesus interacts with wealthy members of the Sanhedrin, and, and he also interacts with blind blind beggars yeah. that had nothing 
The Pharisees practiced exclusionary religion. They only associated with the people who met their standards, people that they thought of as, as theologically pure. And, and I think that tells us something about organized religion. Organized religion views the church as a spiritual museum where we get all the best people that we can find and we put them on display so that the world can know this is what we're about. We're about being the good people. To get beyond organized religion, I would argue that we have to view the church as a hospital in which we welcome the sick, yes. we do what we can to help heal them, and we love them no matter what. Yes. Organized religion sees sinners, a sinner is somebody to be shunned. To get beyond organized religion, we have to see people that sin and have problems as people to be embraced. We, we, we find out somebody's made a mistake, we work harder at developing a relationship with them. Organized religion views outsiders with suspicion. It is reluctant to engage outsiders for fear that we might somehow be tainted to get beyond organized religion. We have to view outsiders as people created in the image of God and realize that developing relationships with them is the key to us fulfilling our purpose for being in the world. Organized religion highlights areas of disagreement and difference so as to exclude the people who do not measure up. To get beyond organized religion, we have to highlight the areas of agreement and similarity so that we can encourage others who need God. Jesus says, here's the real problem. There's just not enough people who understand Hosea 6.6. 6. He quotes it in reference to the Pharisees, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than, than burnt offerings. And this passage is so important to Jesus that he quotes it other times in the book of Matthew. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the original context, God is explaining why he is just in punishing Judah for with the Babylonian captivity. And as he talks about Judah's spiritual failures and, and why they're having to go through this, God says, the real problem is, is you don't understand what I want. I, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy refers to the way we treat the people around us, especially the people who are struggling. They may be struggling morally or socially or intellectually or in, economically or in any other different way. And the, ideal is, the idea is that we tolerate shortcomings in other people for the purpose of being in relationship with them so that we can minister to them in Jesus' name. Amen. Sacrifice refers to religious ceremony, rituals, formal procedures. Organized religion focuses on sacrifice. It focuses on getting the rituals right to get beyond organized religion, Jesus says. We have to focus on mercy. Love of people whose lives are a mess. I like to ask people the question, would you rather stand before God having accepted people that he ultimately chooses to reject, or do you want to stand before God having rejected people that in the end he ends up accepting? That's what it, that question creates some interesting conversations. I've had a lot of interesting conversations with people down for the years, and I always let the conversation go on before, for a little while before I remind them of the fact that Jesus directly answered the question. 
about how we're supposed to stay before God. Matthew 13, he's giving his kingdom parables. It says, Jesus told them the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads and the weeds uh, also appeared, the owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds uh, come from? Uh, an enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? That's the response of organized religion. The response of organized religion, if we see some, some, some sinners in the church, we see some weeds <coughs> in with the wheat, and we're not going to tolerate that. That has to be addressed. And so we have to deal somehow with, with, with the flaws that we see uh, in the congregation. Jesus says, no, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Uh, if I was Jesus, I'd have been a little stronger. I'd have said, you will uproot the wheat along with the weeds. Because the problem is, we are not discerning enough to know who's wheat yes, and who's weeds. Yes. We just don't have that ability. And so when organized religion, religion gets busy pulling up the weeds, Inevitably, we get some wheat mixed in there too. So, so organized religion ends up rejecting people that God has accepted. That's right. And that, folks, is a tragedy. To get beyond organized religion, we have to focus on accepting as many as we can. We expand the circle. Verse 30 says, uh, uh, let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles and be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. To get beyond organized religion means we get out of the judging business. Yeah. Because folks, we are not qualified. Yeah. We don't know what's in people's hearts. God and only God knows what's in the heart. And that means that God and only God is, is, is fit to judge what we have to do is expand the circle as much as we possibly can without just making a mockery of our faith. And then let God sort it out in the end. That, in part, is what it means to go beyond organized religion. I have 18 other points, <laughs> so uh, you are free to check those out online. You've been very gracious in listening to me. Um, uh, I'm sorry we didn't have more conversation, but I think these things are important and need to be tested. Let's pray very quickly and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for, for giving us the chance to, uh, for, for giving us examples. Thank you for giving, giving us examples of scripture of not only what it means to be your people and what it means to live righteously, but thank you for also giving examples of what we can become if we're not careful. Um, we ask you for mercy because we have no hope apart from that. And then we ask you to give us the discernment to be able to extend mercy because that's the only way we can accomplish your will in the world. Bless us as we seek your will in all things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.